So, with all of that, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and uh, the glory of the Son is the object here, and the glory of the Son secures our glory. So, as we look at how He is glorified, it should encourage us as to the security of our glory. Chapter 1 of Ephesians... I should like to read from verse 15 through 23. We have spent some time in here already, but I want to remind us by reading through here just the passage that is before us, and our attention will be spent from verse 20 to 23, but I want to read from 15 through 23. The Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write these words, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, 23, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, we've been working through this Apostle Paul's intercessory prayer. He's been praying on behalf of the believers in Ephesus. And as we just saw here from verse 15 through 23, we have been here a few weeks already. And I want to remind us of the flow of thought. So we're we're following in Paul's wake here. And so we're going to understand just what is going on in this chapter so we can get a, a, a better grip on what is it that he is saying to us. Now I remind you of the amazing truths that precede his prayer, starting in verse 3 of this chapter and going to verse 14. The, the overarching theme in verse 3 is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now verse 3 is an, is an overarching statement as to why we should praise God. We should all praise God because we are all equally blessed in verse 3 with spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Verse 4 on through 14 are details about these spiritual blessings that he mentions in verse 3. So that you notice that each of us are included. In other words, there's nobody who's more chosen than another. There's nobody who's more predestined. There's nobody who's more redeemed. There's nobody who's more forgiven. There's nobody who is loved more by God. There's nobody more sealed by God. If you are in Christ whether it's just now at this very moment or 80 years walking with Christ, it is equal of those, both, both of those people it is that you have been already spiritually blessed by God the Father in the heavenlies. Therefore, we should all equally praise God for the blessings He's bestowed on us. And that's what verses 3 through 14 is about. Among other things, it lays a foundation for unity in the church. There is a spiritual unity. Every single person who is in Christ is in those verses. Okay, And so then he comes to verse 15, and he begins to pray on behalf of those who are spiritually blessed. Okay? Um, as you, so why should we praise God in verse 3, moves into verse 15 and following why we should pray to the Father. We should pr- notice in verse 17 that his prayer is specifically to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Okay? In verse 3, it was God the Father of our Lord Jesus who blessed us. So the subject, the ultimate subject of this chapter is God the Father. Okay? God the Father, who is called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. 
In verse 15, you notice that he is praying specifically for all the saints, in in verse 15, for the faith in the Lord Jesus, for those who believe, and then the proof of their faith in verse 15 is your love for all the saints. So he's praying for those who are believers in Christ. That's evidence of their election. Evidence of their faith is their love, because it's tangible, it's visible, it's action, okay? Paul says, since seeing that, I'm praying for those who possess faith and love for the saints. And then that's where he gets in verse 17. In the second half of verse 17, you notice, we begin to see the content of his prayer there. He says that the God and Father may give to you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of Him. Okay, so just reminding us of where we've already been here that his first concern of his prayer here is that those who believe in Christ would grow in their personal experiential knowledge of God. It's not static, because the moment you're saved, it's not like you know everything there is about God, and there's, you don't know Him intimately at that moment like you're going to tomorrow or a year from now. So his prayer is that those who already believe would grow in their personal experiential knowledge of God, okay? And we should all be concerned about that. We should all be pursuing Christ, the knowledge of Christ in that way. So this is where he starts in his prayer here, okay? Now you come to verse 18, and he says, notice that his request in verse 18 is that each of us who trust in Christ, having already been spiritually enlightened, he wants us to comprehend three essential truths. And we've already looked at this, so I'm just going to blast through this. But in verse 18, you see there, so that you will know what, the first essential truth, what is the hope of his calling, secondly, verse 18, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, Third, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now, these three essential truths that Paul's praying for, that we want to emulate, by the way, as we see this, let us follow suit, let us follow in his steps, let us pray for one another in the same way, okay? Um, And he starts with hope of his calling. We're going to say that that is... He wants us to know the glory of his plan for the future. Okay? Second one, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? Paul wants us to know the glory of his people. So he wants us to know the glory of God's plan for the future. He wants us to know, secondly, what is the glory of his people. That is the glory that God puts on to them. And thirdly, in verse 19, he wants us to know the glory of his power. The glory of his power. Now, these three, re- re- these three realities, which each believer in Christ already possesses, he doesn't want us to grab hold of hope. He doesn't want us to get a hope. He wants us to realize what is already the hope of the gospel. Okay? He wants us to already realize what God thinks of us as a treasure. And he wants us to already know what's available to us, and that is the power of God. Okay? So he wants us to realize these things that are already true of all of us. In other words, put it this way. As we understand the promises of the gospel, the future, eternal glory, the resurrection to be like Christ in His presence forever, serving Him with immeasurable joy, as we understand that, that helps to settle us in this life, as we understand the perspective that God the Father has for His own, and that He treasures us, that He delights in us, that He sings over us. Those are all verses we looked at in weeks past. As you come to grips with that, that helps settle you, in this life, because this life is tough and this life is full of troubles, you must have this understanding. And then thirdly, as we understand the power of God that is towards us to help us live faithfully in this life for Christ, we will persevere with joy in the midst of all trials. So this is Paul's concern. He wants us to think right about what God has already done. He wants us to think right of what God thinks of us, and He wants us to think right of what is available to us in the power of God to live for God. And this is His prayer.
today we will finish this chapter and the, our, our interest will be verse 20 and on here because here in verses 20 on he expands or explains further the power that he's talking about, the power of God. And he gives an utmost example of God's power in this section of ours. The power that's available to us is the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the very same power that seated Christ in the highest position of all, in the supreme position of glory. It's the very same power that God used to cause all things to be subject to Jesus Christ. That's available to you as a believer today. He desires, Paul does, that we understand the glory of the Son of God in this section, verses 20 to 23. And this is the basis of our own eternal security. Because knowing this, the glory of the Son, gives us a great assurance because the power that glorified Christ is the same power that will glorify you. And so he wants us to focus on how God has already done this in Christ. He then wants you to realize that's what's available for you. So don't cave. Don't shrink back. Don't deviate. Stay the course. Stay in the track of God. Stay in the footprints of Christ. Stay steadfast in the midst of trouble. So then let's look at the glory of the Son in verse 20 through 23. At the middle, second half of verse 19, my bad, he's he's talking about the surpassing greatness of the power, verse 19, towards us who believe. And we looked at this last time together, so we won't re-preach that. But just to mention again in verse 19, the concern of Paul is that we understand what's available to us. And look at the, 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 the superlatives that he uses in verse 19 to describe the power, the surpassing greatness of His, that's God the Father's, power that's towards us, directed toward us who believe. Okay? This is in accordance, the rest of the verse 19, with the working of the strength of His might. Just other terms describing God's power that has been put into action. Not only, because not only does God possess power, He's omnipotent, and and He does not expend energy. He doesn't deplete energy. He puts it into action. Second half of verse 19 is is... are words describing that God has put into action, into movement, His power. Okay, so verse 19, he wants us to understand just how great God's power is. And this is in accordance with how he put it into action and how it's best put into action. Or the most elite illustration is verse 20. Look what he says. Which he, God the Father, brought about or caused to work in Christ. So the power that he wants you and I to understand is that which he brought into action in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, In particular, not in his life, when he went and healed and he went and walked on water and calmed the sea. That's not what he's talking about here. The greatest illustration of the Father's power is noticed in 20. When, timing, he raised him from the dead. When he raised Christ from the dead. So he's, he's drawing our focus to when a historical, actual event of this, right? Of when the Messiah was actually crucified. He, was actually, he actually physically died and was actually literally laid in a tomb. He's drawing their attention to that event. And he says the power of God was put into action in that body that laid in the tomb. Right? So he's drawing their attention there. Christ's dead body was the point on which this working of God's infinite power was exhibited. I mean, that's amazing. Okay. Now get, and so he wants, remember now, this is what Paul wants the believers to come to grips, to understand, okay? That this is what's available to you. This is what's available to you. I think we need to know this. 
I even want to know this. Right? Now, Paul is emphasizing here the working of God the Father because he's the one who he's praised to in verse 17 and the Father's the one who's doing the actions and the answer to the prayer and it's his power towards us. He's the one who's brought it about in Christ in verse 20. Verse 20 continues, when he raised him, God the Father is the emphasis here. He's the one who raised Christ from the dead. Now, if you notice there in verse 20, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's so like the Greek language. It's, it's just more than we can gather out of our English text. And I, but listen to this in verse 20. when it, He says, when he raised him from the dead. Literally, when he raised him from out of the dead ones. That's how it literally reads. When God raised Christ out from the dead ones. Okay, well, what's the big deal there? Well, think about this. It's interesting, the emphasis from out of the dead ones. Okay, from out of that sphere, from out of that context, from out of the company of the dead ones. The Father's power was exhibited in bringing life to that body that laid lifeless in the tomb. And God delivered him from out of the realm of the dead ones. Now think of this. He came to life. The grave couldn't hold him. The grave was conquered. The devil defeated. God broke his grip. God broke the chains and the irons that holds people in death. He is not here, the angel said. He has risen, just as he said. And it's God's power that invigorated, it, brought to, it animated and brought life back to a lifeless body and rescued him out, <laughs> pulled him from out of the clutches of the dead ones. How bad did the devil want Christ to remain dead? Pretty bad, because he would have made God a liar if Christ doesn't raise. How powerful is God in that Satan had no chance whatsoever to clutch to Christ. The power of God came and said life and gave life to this dead body and delivered him out from the dead ones. Paul says that's the power that's available to you to live a life faithful to Christ in this life. We have no excuses, you see. We have nothing but encouragement, massive encouragement. That's amazing, beloved. That's amazing. That's why we need to pray this for one another because we get shrouded in our troubles and the life takes over in the oppression. We're weak. We are weak. That's why we need the body. You have to be part of a body so that the body prays for you. And can you imagine we all start praying like this? That you pray, we say this all the time, but you start praying for me, right? Practice, practices, pray for me that I would understand the surpassing greatness of the power towards me. Yeah? And then we pray. Can you imagine praying that for one another? Yes. This is what Paul's concern is. But Paul is driving their attention in verse 20 when he raised him out from the dead ones. Now, hold your finger here, please. Go to Acts chapter 2, a couple places. In what God has accomplished here in raising Christ, through Christ's resurrection, the devil is rendered powerless. The believer no longer has to fear death. It actually could be embraced. It actually can be embraced because of the resurrection of Christ. Right? Look at Acts 2, please. And we'll pick it up for context. How about 23 and 24? Of chapter 2, Luke writes, This man, he's talking about Christ now, 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, the sovereignty of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Man's responsibility. Look at 24. Ah, but God raised him up again, putting an end, notice, to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. 
So the, the power of God that came and gave life to Christ delivered him from the clutches of the enemy, delivered him from the bondage of death, and rendered the one who has the power of death, which is Satan. And, and here it says, the agony of death is gone because Christ has been raised. Why is the agony of death gone? Because you, like Christ, cannot be held by the grave eternally. Right? The grave is not to be feared by the believer because Christ's tomb is empty. And as he is raised, you shall be raised. So it's no longer to be feared. You see? It's no longer to be feared. I like that. (laughs) Go to Hebrews 2, please, real quick. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15 at least. Again, through Christ's resurrection, the agony of death, the suffering of death has been transformed. And the one who has the power of death, the devil, has been defeated. Look at verse 14, Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, flesh and blood, that through death He, Christ, might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil's been overcome by Christ. Verse 15, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you see what 15 is saying? That before Christ's resurrection, the fear of the grave, the fear of death and the unknown, made people slaves of trying to avoid the grave, avoid death. They would do anything to avoid death. Christ has come. He has gone into the grave and into the sphere of the dead ones, and Christ has de- or God has delivered him out of that, therefore rendering powerless the one who had the power of the grave. The gatekeeper of the grave has just had his tail end whipped <laughs> by Jesus Christ. He's been conquered. He's been conquered by Christ. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. The death has no teeth. The death cannot, the grave cannot keep you. I mean, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Absent from the bodies, present with the Lord. Our spirit. This is talking beyond, that's, this is talking resurrection of the physical, Right? Our spirit goes now, if I was to drop dead now, the spirit goes to be with Christ, the body will be put in the ground. But that's not the end of it, right? Christ will reunite and resurrect the body. And this is what's being spoken of here. The grave cannot hold the physical body of the believer. He's delivered out from, and he will live forever with Christ. Okay? Now that's the power of God to do this. Death no longer is to be feared. It's, not, it's, it's no longer even to be avoided. I mean, the early church, the martyrs, saw it as a great, great, uh, great honor to die for the name of Christ. Now, I'm not saying go seek your martyrdom. God will bring it if he's going to kill you in that manner. But if he does, it's not to be avoided. It's to be rejoiced. Because Christ's tomb is empty. And in Christ, so shall yours. And the agony of death, the pain of death, the sting of death is gone. Is gone. I, would, I think that would change maybe how I live maybe sometimes. Amen. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, think of this. Death now is the pathway into God's presence. So the top, the top end of a grave is but a stairway to glory. Because Christ has been delivered. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. As he is raised, we too shall be raised. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.14. Quote, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.14. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruit, that's the sample of what's yet to come, the full harvest. And the first fruit is but a sample, an example of what to expect. As Christ was raised, we will be raised in the exact same manner. Literally, physically. Resurrected. That's amazing. He's the first fruits. 
1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, like Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, Christ. See, this is the power that, that Paul wants us to be aware of. The power that has accomplished that on, on Christ's behalf is what is available to me right now. Right now. That's amazing. We'll look soon. We'll look to see what that exactly means. You're not going to go raise the dead yourself, right? But uh, the power of God in the Christian's life. Um, only God's power. Back to Ephesians, please. Only God's power could accomplish this, of course. There's been others who have been resurrected. Elijah, right? Elisha. Um, Christ raised Lazarus. But it's not the same. It's not resurrection in the sense like Christ is raised because they died yet. Christ has been risen never to die again. And when you are raised up in the same manner, you will never die again either. Okay? All right. So only Christ, only God's power can accomplish this. This power of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be interrupted. It cannot be stopped. He promised, he predicted Christ's resurrection, and he performed just as he said he would. On the third day, Christ was raised. This is the glory of the Son, in verse 20 of our Ephesians text. Raised out from the dead ones, never to die again, alive forevermore. Revelation 1.17 through 18 says, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Okay? So shall you be. Not only then, Ephesians, please. The second expression here is shown of God's power that He wants us to realize not only that is Christ living, not only is He raised from the dead in verse 20, look at the second um, illustration is given here of His power, is that He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He seated Him. Um, The Son's glory is seen here in that He is seated far above all other powers. The power of God has placed Jesus Christ in the seat of honor. As it says in verse 20, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. A literal, physical, resurrected, glorified body sitting at the right hand of God. The right hand is known as a position of honor and power and authority. At the right hand of God, this is the highest place of honor, the highest position, the greatest position of privilege and honor. In fact, there's no greater position, there's no greater place of honor than the right hand of God. The power of the Father has placed the Son here. This is God's choice. This is God's doing. In our text, Christ is passive in this. He's being acted upon in our text. That's the emphasis of Ephesians 1, is the power of God is accomplishing this on behalf of Christ, which shows you it's the will of the Father. This is His doing. He has raised the Son and given Him life, and not only that, the power of the Father has seated His Son at His right hand. So it's not like like Christ is usurping anything. It's the Father placing Him there. Okay? All right. And so, it's interesting, isn't it, that it takes surpassing great power to place the Son in a seat at His right hand. Which makes me ask, well, why would it take so much power to do that? Probably because there's lots of opposition, right? There's probably lots of demonic, satanic opposition to try to keep that from happening. Because if you could keep God from doing that, With Christ, you would make God a liar because you would then make Psalm 110 verse 1 void. Right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. Okay? Well, if if that doesn't happen, then God's a liar. And there's somebody more powerful than God. But it takes God's power. It took God's power, according to our text, to place Christ in that privileged position. Um... Now, this truth of, God, of Christ's exaltation is, is a dominant theme in the New Testament. And there are just a few verses I'd like to take you to. I quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay? Um, so that, that's obviously Old Testament predicting something that would happen in the future. New Testament consistently uses that verse to prove Christ's exaltation. Okay? That it is the will of God. Now, go to Hebrews, please, to the right. Hebrews 1, sorry. I'm not going to exhaust every usage of the right hand. You can do that on your own using concordance, but I think the ones that I have will be sufficient. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 3. And He is, speaking of the Son, the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power, when, timing word, he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews uses this phrase numerous times to speak of Yahweh, God, God the Father, and speaks of him as the most majestic. He is the majestic one. To sit at the right hand of the one who is the majestic one is to show also your majesty. You have been accepted by the one who's most high and the majestic one, and he says, sit next to me. Okay? So Christ's exaltation is but a further illustration of the Father's glory and exaltation. Okay? The Father is high. He brings the Son to that high. The Son, in verse 3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you go to verse 13 in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he uses this again. Notice he'll quote Psalm 110.1 here. He says, But which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Do you see what the, the author of Hebrews is saying? Christ the Son is greater than any angel. Put any angel there because God the Father has never said to any angel, sit at my right hand, but he has to the Son. You see? So to sit at the right hand of the majesty, to sit at the right hand of God, is the most exalted place to be, and it's God's will that the Son be there, and the Son is greater than the angels. Any angel you want to pick, he far surpasses, because God the Father never said to Satan, Lucifer, to Gabriel, any of the angels, sit at my right hand. It's for the Son. You know why he didn't say it to the angels? They're not great enough. They're not great enough. Jesus is great enough. The Father says, sit here at my right hand. This is, this is reserved for you. That's good stuff. Yeah? In Ephesians, Paul says the power that accomplished that is for you. It's available for you. You have difficult people in your life? You don't run away and hide in the bushes. You call on the power that raises dead people and you call on the power that seated Christ in glory. You see? It's so practical. We have so much at our disposal and we live like paupers. We have something more powerful than a nuke. <laughs> right? And I live like I have the assault gun. You ever seen those assault guns? It shoots actually salt. <laughs> Not everybody knows what I'm talking about. I can see. Um, like my phone. We talk about my phone a lot. I'm pretty ignorant. I use my phone to text and to call somebody. But it could do 63,000 things on that phone, right? But I'm ignorant of it and I don't use it to its full capacity. That's the majority of Christians. I guarantee you. You have at your disposal the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the most prominent position in the heavenlies and we live like we are paupers. I don't want to live like that. I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. That doesn't mean hit home runs and slam dunk basketballs when I can't do that. That means I can live in, when I don't have anything or when I have much and anything in between. I can live a life according to the grace of God in a manner worthy of His name because of the power of Christ. You see? That's powerful. That's good stuff. Go to uh, Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first sermon. 
I'd say the Holy Spirit makes a difference in people's lives. This is Peter's first sermon in Acts 2. And uh, it's not the same Peter of the Gospels, man. Right? This is a preacher here. And he's going to explain by using Old Testament passages to prove that the Christ is the one whom the Old Testament was pointing to and not David. And notice what I'm going to emphasize here is the glory of the Son. Verse 32, chapter 2, down through 36. This Jesus, the one who died, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. We have seen it. Verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted, where? To the right hand of God... He's been acted upon there, okay? Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the Son, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He's talking about the the flames of tongue and the Holy Spirit coming down in Pentecost in this context. So, get this right here. The Son died... God raised him, God exalted him, God put him at his right hand. From that place and position, the Father gave to him the right to pour out the Holy Spirit as he sovereignly wills. So Christ is the one in this text who's responsible for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And he was given that right by the Father. Now remember, Jesus Christ is deity, but he left that aside when he became a man. And so this is, this is a new experience for Jesus Christ because he's now experienced this as the God-man raised from the dead. Does that make sense? Before he took on flesh, he was, had all the power, all the wisdom and knowledge, but he set that aside, right, and took on flesh and became a man. And in so doing, he set aside his privileges He never experienced being a human being. So every step of the way in his human life was a new experience for God in flesh. God in flesh actually died. God's never experienced that before. But he died actually by becoming a man. He was raised from the dead. Literally and actually. He's ascended and placed at the right hand of God the Father as the God-man. And in that sense, he's given the right here in Acts, the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit from that position. You see? That's glorious. All right, keep going. Where am I? 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, now he's going to quote Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, conclusion, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay? My point is this. He's, it is God, the Father, His power that not only gave life, but placed Jesus at the privileged seat on the right hand. And from that right hand, we learn here that He has the authority to pour forth the Holy Spirit. Okay, Um, go to Romans 8, please. I believe Max preached on this a couple times before. Um, So I'll just remind you in verse 34, notice what the, the Son is doing from this privileged position at the right hand. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? Interceding for us. Okay? So, this, 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 when Ephesians talks about the power to raise Christ and the power to seat him at his right hand in the heavenlies, this is a common thread and theme through the New Testament that is fulfilling Psalm 110 verse 1, which predicted that fact, that God would become a man, would go to the grave, be raised, and have returned to glory. But as the God-man resurrected, glorified, He's at the right hand of God the Father. And from that prominent position, He's pouring forth the Holy Spirit as He desires, and He is interceding on behalf of the saints from that position. So back to Ephesians, please. He's in that seat because he's the only one worthy of that seat. There's no angels. 
that's worthy. Now look at verse 21. The glory of the Son is even shown more precisely because in this superior position in the heavenlies, verse 21, He's far above all rule. It's, it's, the word far above there is hyper. He's hyper above. He, he's, he's surpassing. He's exceedingly. He's hyper above all, notice 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion. Stopping there. This is all inclusive. And anyone who claims to rule, anyone who claims to have authority, anyone who claims to have power, dominion, Christ far above them, hyperly. Right? Think of the greatest rulers, the greatest powers on earth or in the heavens. They are all inferior to Jesus Christ. Every single one is inferior to Jesus Christ. They cannot compare with Him. He towers above them all, even the most powerful. In Ephesians, go to chapter 3, please. I think the, 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 the authorities, the powers, and the dominions, I think those are angelic powers, precisely. They could be demonic or holy angels, whatever you want. He far surpasses them all. But look at chapter 3, verse 10, where I think these authorities are mentioned here. Notice verse 10, chapter 3. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to where the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. Same kind of language there. In the heavenlies. Uh, chapter 6. I think it's probably tw- it's 12. Look at 6.12 there. He says, For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Okay? So when you put all this in, and then if you were to add Colossians 1.16, you read today, right? Who created these authorities? Who's the one? Who's the Lord over all these authorities? According to Colossians 1.16 is the firstborn of all creation, right? Jesus Christ, the Son. So his, He is far above, not only as Creator, but He abandoned, that's not the right word, He left that aside when He took on flesh, and God the Father has restored Him far above all that authority. Okay? Seated at the right hand. Okay. Um, so then back to Ephesians 1, please. He says here, in verse 21, that He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He, he is far superior. Notice, He goes on to say in verse 21, "...in every name that is named..." Every name that is named. What's in a name, right? Descriptive of one's ability, one's power. um, Names bear authority, right? The name of Caesars would certainly bear authority in first century, right? Um, A seal, the presidential seal, the presidential, the, the, the seal of the emperor. There's authority in a name. No name is beyond Christ. No name is superior to Christ. Philippians 2 talks about every name, right? He's, he's been given a name that far surpasses, is far greater, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, yeah? To the glory of God the Father. There is no, there is no power, there's no name, there's no position, there's no person, there's no angel, good, bad, or un, indifferent. There is nothing that exists in creation that is superior to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can say here that we exist to promote the fame of Jesus Christ. Right? Um, so this is what Paul is saying. The power that accomplishes that is available to you. But notice how secure is this position. In verse 21, notice, how secure is Christ's position? Because you might say, well, that's great for now, but what about tomorrow? Right? There might, somebody might show up. <laughs> well, look what it says in verse 21. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Okay? This age probably has to deal since, since Pentecost, since the resurrection, perhaps, unto the rapture time. you got age, perhaps, another t- age, another type of how God is working and happening during the millennial kingdom. Certainly the eternal kingdom. You're going to have... 
um, a new realm. Things will be different in the eternal kingdom. Uh, new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. First Peter, Second Peter 3, sorry. Um, look at chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians. Paul mentions a plurality of ages in verse 7. Notice what it says here. So that in the ages to come, plural, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So at least the idea is this. How secure is this, the supremacy of Christ? It's in this age and whatever age there is to come, there will be no one who usurps Christ's position. No one will dethrone him. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you see where he's going? You're as secure as he is. You are as secure as He is. And He ain't going anywhere. Because God the Father's power has determined and secured this. Um, hallelujah. Truly, hallelujah. All right. um, look at, please, in verse 22. The power of God in verse 22. He put, He the Father, put all things in subjection under His feet. Notice here it says all things, every creature under his feet. If he, is, if he is over all creation and they are made to be subject to him, then he is sovereign over them. He is Lord and Master. He is the Kurios over all. The, the, all, are, all are in a position of slavery over the Lord. Under the Lord, sorry. He is Master over all creation, whatever that is, human or angelic or creaturely, there is nothing that is out from his realm. Okay. Um, now, if you were to go to Hebrews 2, please, because this, is, this, is, uh, this idea is concerning Psalm 8 and the glory of man. Okay. What, what is man, Psalm 8 says? Um, that you are concerned about him, right? In look at Saul, uh, Hebrews two. He's going to be referencing here Psalm eight, but starting in verse five of Hebrews two, please. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Verse six. But one has testified somewhere, saying, and this is Psalm eight. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. He's talking about mankind here. Okay? In its original setting of Psalm 8, he's talking about Adam in particular and mankind. Was not man made in the image of God? Man was given dominion over all creation. Psalm 8, David is like stunned that God who is so great would be concerned about man who is so little. But man who is so little in verse 7 has been crowned with glory and honor. Notice, continue. And he appointed him, man, over the works of your hands and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay. So in the original setting before the fall, that was Adam's job. The first man was to have dominion and all of creation was to be under mankind. And Adam was an extension of Yahweh's rulership. Okay? But since the fall came, man abdicated, failed in his dominion. And now horses buck you off and sharks eat you. <laughs> right? That's not the original design, man. <laughs> right? Things have gone catawampus. There's, there's no, they're not subject to me. They're trying to kick my head off. Right? Christ comes... And the, he comes as the second Adam to fulfill that which Adam failed. The second Adam comes, God, the perfect man, to accomplish what Adam couldn't do. And he had to come and be made a little lower than the angels. Christ was crowned with glory and honor because he's man. He has, notice in verse 7 again, have appointed him over the works of your hands. He's talking about Jesus. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus' feet. The rest of verse 8, please look. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. In other words, it's accomplished, it's done it just hasn't come to culmination yet. It hasn't come to full fruition. 
it's waiting for all that God has designed to come to fruition so that this is fulfilled in that Jesus Christ will fulfill the Adamic purpose of reigning over God's creation. And so Jesus comes and our text in Ephesians, this text here, and then you got other passages that deal with being all things will be subject to you until your enemies are made your footstool. You see, there's, there's, there's timing things that are coming, but we can say right now that it is fixed and will not change, that all of creation and every creature is subject to Jesus Christ. He's allowing rebellion now for a time, but that day's coming shorter. No matter who's in any office in any city, be it Sacramento or Washington, D.C. or anywhere else, right? They will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, right? Okay. Now, back to Ephesians, real quick. This power that Paul wants us to know about raised Christ, seated him in the powerful position far above all and every rule, not only in this age, but the age to come, so it's eternally secure. Verse 22, He has put all things in subjection under His feet, and it gets even gooder. He climaxes here. This is amazing stuff. Look at the second part of verse 22. The power of God not only put all things in subjection, but He gave Him, God the Father gave Him as head over all things to the church. Whoa. God's power gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Notice the one who is head, the one who is Lord over all creation, is head of the church. God the Father, according to verse 22, has gifted to the church the one who is head over all creation. The one who's head of the church is the one who all things are subject to. Interesting. In verse 22, it, says, it ends with the church to the church, which verse 23 then takes up and explains and amplifies, and he says this, which is his body. Now get where he's going here. This analogy of head and body is extensively used by Paul to speak of Christ's relationship to His church. Yeah? He uses it extensively. Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians. Alright. What does it reveal? When He says He's given His head to the church and the church is His body. Think of this. What is He revealing? The members... Think of uh, from Corinthians, we learn that the members are so interrelated that if you injure a hand, you're going you're gonna to affect the foot. Whatever happens to one member happens to the other. You exalt one, you exalt the whole body. If you, if you oppress the, the, body, the one member of the body, the whole body is suffering, yes? They're so interrelated and so closely interlinked, the body. And you, so, this is, so he's saying the head is Christ, the body's the church, and God's the one who uses the analogy. And He's purposely using an analogy we would understand to show just how closely interrelated Christ is to His people. So close is He related. Can a head exist without a body? Why does He use the analogy? Can a body exist without a head? No. They, they're complementary. Think of this. You're going to throw rocks at me as blasphemy, but Christ is the one who chose the analogy. And Martin, Lo- Martin Lloyd-Jones agrees with me, so I am in good company. Right? <laughs> Look at what he says again in 22. I gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The head is so intimately connected that the body derives its life and its power and its direction from its head. The body is how the head expresses itself, manifests itself. Go to Ephesians 4. Go to Ephesians 4. Look at verse 15 and 16. 
But speaking the truth in love, 4.15, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 16 starts with what? From whom, that means the head is the source, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The head and body so interrelated. The head in this text is the source of the growth okay, in this text. And without a head, the body ain't growing. Okay. Go to Ephesians 5. Verse, um, well, 22. I'm going to pick and choose here. I'm going to ricochet through here. 22, 522. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is head of the wife. As Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives be subject to their husbands. Okay, that's relationship. But notice the head and the husband. The husband is an earthly expression of that heavenly reality. Christ is head of the body. Verse 25. Notice how intimate. What does it mean, head and body? Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this intimacy, this headship, okay, so interrelated, the body subjects itself to the head, and the head, and the, the husband who is the head is like Christ loving his body. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So do you see, it's so intimately connected here that to love the wife is to love myself because the two are one. Okay, now look where he goes with this, please. (laughs) Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, present tense, and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So the body analogy Thus far here is showing the interconnectedness, the interrelation, how closely intimate, related Christ is to his body in that he loves his body. He cherishes and nourishes and cherishes his body. Keep going, 30. Because we are members of his body. Verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But notice, he's not talking about husband and wife. He's talking about Christ and the church. Look at the next verse, 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church, not to husbands and his wives. So the very analogy that God uses to describe his relationship to his people is a head and body, bride and bridegroom, husband and wife. You Do you see? You can't. If you are bridegroom, you are not completed without your bride. If you are head, you are not completed without your body. It is purposely chosen. Christ has made it that way. That He, in some sense, is not completed without His body. Okay, now get this. Back to Ephesians 1. He says, He gave His head over all things to the church, which is His body. Okay, now, we just learned that the head has been raised, the head has been seated in the most prominent of places, the head is far above all rule and authority, all things have been placed under the head's feet. What does that mean for me? Can I be separated from my head? No. The encouragement here is the power of God that has accomplished this for the head has accomplished it for the body. As Christ goes, so the body goes. Does the Bible not say that you will reign and rule with Christ? Does the, body, does the Bible not say you will even rule with a rod of iron in Revelation 2, the overcomer? Are we not joint heirs with Christ? Do you see what he's... This is absolutely amazing. Or the analogy makes no sense. 
Why use the analogy if that's not what he's talking about? That's exactly what he's talking about. You can't exist without the head. And as the head goes, so the body goes. Okay. It gets gooder. <laughs> Look at verse 23. Almost finished. What's it say about the body at the rest of verse 23? That we are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Hmm. The church is the fullness. What does fullness mean? Well, I have some ideas. In Ephesians 1.10, that phrase is used, notice, with a view, 1.10, to an administration suitable to the, quote, fullness of the times. Galatians 4.4 says that God sent His Son in the fullness of the time. Okay? Fullness of times, fullness of the time. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled. Same root word. Okay? Be filled with the Spirit instead of wine. The fullness of time came. Then He sent His Son. Okay? The... the 319 of Ephesians talks about this and says, To know the love of Christ or surpassing knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So you have the fullness of God, fullness of time. You have 413 in Ephesians and it talks about that you, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to, listen, the fullness of Christ. So if you have the fullness of something, you have all of it, I'm going to say. The fullness of time means it has struck midnight or whatever time pre-appointed. Yes, the fullness of time, it's filled, it's time to go. Send His Son. The fullness of God. Colossians 2.9 says about Christ that in bodily form all the fullness of deity dwells. That means all of God dwells in the person of Christ. All right. I wore you out yet with that? Back to our text says that the church, the body, is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That in the body is the manifestation of the fullness of God. The one who fills all in all. He, John MacArthur would say this, quote, The church is the complement of Christ. As a head must have a body to manifest the glory of that head, so the Lord must have the church to manifest His glory. Okay? He fills all in all. He is incomparable, but He has chosen to display His majesty He is incomplete without His body. We are guaranteed then glorification so that we might forever manifest His glory and praise. He is incomplete until the church is completely in glory. So says Lloyd-Jones. So then, just as all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form, so too all His fullness dwells in His body, the church. Wow. So then to look on Christ is to see God. To look on the church is to see Christ. Isn't that true? 1 John 4.12 says, The invisible God is seen when you love like God. We, we bring manifestation. So the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God is in His body. So then, the greatness of our Lord is the security of our glory. You see, John Calvin said it like this. This is the highest honor of the church, that until He, Christ, is united to us in resurrected glory, the Son of God reckons Himself in some measure incomplete. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are in His presence in resurrected glory does He possess all His parts. The glory of the Son is accomplished by the power of the Father and not only for Christ but for 
But it is revealed to us that our eternal security is assured because of His glory. You see? Therefore, that power is available now to live steadfast in the midst of sufferings and trials and afflictions, persecutions. We have the power to be faithful to the end. We have the power. We have the power to walk step after step in the pathway of righteousness for the glory of God. Hmm. This power is available to each one of us. Let us pray for it. Listen to, go, li, listen to Ephesians 3.19 and to, to know the love of Christ. Or 3.20, my Ben. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. That works within us. Ephesians 6.10 says it like this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then it talks about putting on the armor of God. The strength of the Lord is at our disposal. Awesome. We said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the all things there is to live without or to live with abundance and everything in between. He provides His power to live for His glory. Amen? Amen. Church, be encouraged. Be be, be nine foot tall and bulletproof. Right? Because the power that raised Christ is at your disposal. The power that put Jesus in the highest position is at your disposal. The power that put everything subject to Him is at your disposal. So let's, uh, let's pray for one another in that way. Huh? Can we pray and then we'll do a song? Well, Father, we thank You for Your Word. I ask that You take my attempt here and press it deep down within our souls, Lord. Cause us to live in light of these truths, the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of Your inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.